And the next day I was obviously coming down with a cold. But my technique for handling a cold was work your ass off, walk two and a half miles, go on about your business. And the second day the cold was a little worse, Sunday, but I worked through it. I took my two and a half mile walk. The next day at the office, I can't even remember, Scott. All I know is that I was at the office on Monday. And on Tuesday, at sometime around noon, early in the day, I said, you've got to get me out of here. If I don't get out fast, I'll be too weak to even walk up my stairs. And they called a car service. So one staff member got under this armpit. Another staff member got under this armpit and they dragged me to the elevator and threw me into a car as if I were a sack of potatoes. And I lay there in the back until we got to my house and I don't know how I made it up the stairs because I live on the fourth floor. And I didn't leave that bed, that bedroom, my bedroom for the next three months. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. Who is Howard Bloom? And what does he have to do with the COVID pandemic? It's hard to know where to start. Howard is a world-renowned scientist, a highly regarded intellectual, an author and lecturer on wide-ranging subjects, a frank philosopher, and swears like a broken-down truck driver. Howard's number one principle of science is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And he has written or lectured on quantum physics, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, economics, and aerospace, among other scientific disciplines. Howard has been described as the next in a lineage of seminal thinkers that includes Newton, Darwin, and Einstein. Yet Howard made a huge social impact managing public relations for some of the world's biggest rock stars like Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, and on and on the list goes. Howard's success was unparalleled and his future was wide open to possibilities until his ambitious plans came to a screeching halt. Howard got sick with the flu, but instead of getting better in a few days, he got worse, much worse. Howard would spend the next 15 years practically bedbound, 
and five of those years he was so weak he couldn't speak, and so sick he couldn't have people in the same room. Howard would eventually figure out he had ME-CFS, informally known as chronic fatigue syndrome, or CFS, but preferentially called myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, ME-CFS being the common acronym. An ME is a complex disease that causes chronic immune and neurological dysfunction. Like millions of other people who never recovered from the flu or a viral or bacterial infection and developed ME-CFS, Howard's life, his hope, his dreams would never be the same. It is well known in the medical community that some people never recover from viral infections. And just like many of the SARS pandemic victims did not fully recover because they developed ME-CFS, it is beginning to appear that many of the COVID pandemic victims will also develop chronic immune and neurological problems like ME-CFS patients. The world may be facing millions more people who never recover from COVID and develop ME-CFS like Howard. In this interview, Howard shares his remarkable life with all its highest of highs and lowest of lows and some of the famous people who intersected his journey through the world of rock and roll, and notable people also immersed in scientific discovery. Perhaps as unusual as his life, Howard made a very rare and full recovery from ME-CFS by maintaining a regimen of drugs that keep his body and mind working hard and to find the truth at any cost. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You could also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you've had your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Here is part one of my interview with the engrossing and sublime scientist Howard Bloom, author of the newly released book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me. And a word of warning as always, some folks may be triggered by Howard's experiences with the healthcare system. Okay, my name is Howard Bloom, and um, I consent to being recorded. Great, thank you so much, Howard. So I, I always begin my interviews in the exact same space and place, and it's uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh my God, Scott, it was a nightmare. Um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which in itself is a nightmare. Um, very pretty city. Um, wonderful Victorian architecture, detached buildings with big lawns in the front, big lawns in the back, small lawns on either side, although I didn't, wasn't privileged to get into a neighborhood with all those lawns until I was eight years old. But for a person who is born with the disability of being an intellectual and probably uh, an incipient intellectual when you were born. 
and of probably being on the autism spectrum, which is a term that didn't exist in those days, um, it is an incredibly lonely place to grow up. First of all, it was World War II. I was born in 1943, the year of the Holocaust. And America had just gone into World War II. My father had just started a tiny little hole-in-the-wall liquor store in an attempt to make a living, something that during the Depression had been hard to do. All of a sudden, even though he was 33 years old and had a child who was either on the way, I'm not sure what stage I was in at that point, or had just been born, he was drafted. And he was sent out to California. So I grew up with no father. Because there was that tiny little hole in the wall liquor store, and it was the only means of making a living, my mom had to immediately switch from any maternal role whatsoever and go take care of that liquor store for 12 hours or 14 hours a day. They didn't have enough money for any employees. And uh, that meant I grew up without a mother and without a father. And my mother, who was an incredibly competent woman, was not necessarily good at intimate relationships. So she had a choice to make. She could hire somebody. Somebody was going to need to be in the house while I was there. She could have hired a babysitter. Or she could have hired a cleaning woman. The implication of the word babysitter is you take care of the baby. The implication of the word cleaning woman is you take care of the rug and the vacuum cleaner. She chose to hire cleaning women. So for the first three years of my life, as I remember all the way back to when I was about two years old, uh, the cleaning women, to get me out of the way, would lock me into a tiny little um, windowless corridor with a cold hardwood floor. What I loved was the sight of the sunshine in the bay window. So I would be in that dark spot with my hands on the cold hardwood floor, because I was still crawling at the time, um, looking wistfully out over the distance through the dining room, through the living room. It was a very small apartment, so these were very small rooms, to the distant, very small bay window, way, way in the distance. And that's how I spent the three, first three years of my life. And once my mom let me out of the house, um, first of all, when my dad came back, I was ecstatic. I had a family for the first time in my life. And then my father and mother came to me and said, we have a surprise for you. And the surprise was my baby brother, who became the first child in the family, even though he was the second born because he was the first child to be born unto those two parents. So they parented him, and I was still out in the cold. And my mom, when she finally, she was afraid of polio and God knows what other illnesses, so she was loath to let me out to play with other kids. But on the occasions when she did, they loathed me. No, they didn't. They enjoyed me. Let me explain what I mean by that. When it came time for somebody to find somebody to beat up, or somebody to chase around the block, or somebody to humiliate, I came in remarkably handy. But aside from that, one day they were setting up, this is, remember, these are four-year-old kids. 
And one day they were setting up something, a tent, in somebody's backyard. And it was apparently to play house or something like that, or to play doctor, uh, something I would never have access to, so I don't know what it was. And they saw me coming up the block on the sidewalk, and they sent one kid down the driveway to stop me from even stepping onto the driveway that led to the backyard, much less the backyard itself. So I was universally loathed. And Scott, that turned out that isolation, that terrible isolation, in which I grew up for the first 10 years of my life, turned out to be an incredible, astonishing advantage later on in life. And at 10 years, things changed. When I was in first grade, uh, you did homework in the class with worksheets and crayons and stuff like that. And the first kid to finish always got a gold star. And my and I was always the last one to finish. And one day my teacher called in my mother and basically said, I think your son is mentally retarded. I want you to take him for psychological testing, which my mom did, but she never ever told me the results of those tests. Meanwhile, one day, just one day in a full year of classes, I came in second last. Not the very last one, the second last one. My teacher was so overwhelmed that she gave me a gold star. So I did not have a promising beginning. And I was late to learn how to write, and I was late to learn how to read. And then my dad was doing much better with the liquor store. He'd come back from the war, and he'd made apparently a pile of money because my parents bought, remember, this house that I had been raised in was the size of a craft cheese box. It was the tiniest little house you have ever seen in your life. And the lawn, there was a front lawn, was the size of a postage stamp, and so was the backyard. Well, my dad and mom bought a house with a Frank Lloyd Wright house behind the fence of our backyard. Can you imagine that? I mean, what a fucking astonishment. And it was a relatively isolated neighborhood. None of the kids from my school lived there. And it was about a mile walk to the school. And when you are eight years old, that is a... That's like walking from New York to California a mile long walk. So I was just as isolated as ever before. One day, my next door neighbor, my next door neighbors lived in a big white house and both of them were radiologists, both the husband and the wife. My parents had never had the privilege of going to college. These people had advanced degrees. And one day the woman next door said, look, my kids are away at summer camp, and I have a reading room, and nobody's using it right now. Why don't you come and take a look at my books? So I came over to her house, and she showed me her books, and she had all 38 Oz books. Who knew that there were 38 Oz books? Up until that moment, I hadn't a clue either. So I picked up the second book in the series and read it from cover to cover. 
And then during the course of the summer, I read the entire series of 38 from cover to cover. And this began my new life in a virtual world, the world of reading. And then I moved up by the time we started our fourth grade, I guess it was, or yes, it would have been our fourth grade, I was reading two books a day. And I was reading a book a day under the desk at school, and I wasn't paying any attention to my teachers. I wasn't registering them at all. They might as well not have existed. And uh, instead of paying attention to my teachers and doing my classwork, I was getting a, getting an education. So, Howard, it sort of sounds like uh, what you're saying is that that early life of neglect and just sort of discrimination and marginalization, both within your family and on, on the, your streets, that that was stifling your intellect, but that opportunity with those neighbors when she let you loose into her reading room, that really opened up your intellect. Gave me a whole world. It gave me world after world after world. Two books a day, that's two worlds a day, Scott. Two worlds a day. My mother and dad came back from the war. He had to work all his waking hours of the day um, to take care of that liquor store. And my mom went to work to become the president of Hadassah and the uh, secretary of the Jewish Board of Education so she could hang out with a bunch of college professors that she really resented not having been able to go to college. And there was no time for me. And apparently no inclination either. And so that sounds like it, you, you mentioned this really, it really contrasts with how your parents treated your younger sibling. Oh yeah, he was the first child of family. So they hovered over him, they doted over him. They did all of the things that, parent, that you would expect parents to do for a firstborn son. As he was the fourth first one born unto them. When, when I was in the Cub Scouts, I tried so hard to win medals for various accomplishments. And, um, but the end of every medal winning process was first teaching yourself to do whatever it was you were trying to win a medal in, and then getting your parents to sign a piece of paper. I could not get my parents to sign that piece of paper. I even tried, I left it on their bedroom table in between their two beds. Sorry, they wouldn't sign it. I slipped it under the bathroom when my dad was in the bathroom. Sorry, he wouldn't sign it. When my brother got into the Cub Scouts, my mother became a den mother. See any contrast there? Well, they, they wouldn't even validate you. Yeah, right. So there was a big difference. And, but Scott, it turned out to me, to my advantage, because it meant I have never been allowed to look at things the way other people look at them. And because those first 10 years of my life were actually, it, been on that way for how I don't know how many years, my whole life in Buffalo, New York. Um, I was formed that way. And so if I cannot look at things in a normal way, and I don't want to, because at 10 years old, I was in my family's big living room with the Frederickle Olmsted house behind me and in the park in front of me, but the curtains were drawn all the time for God knows what reason when you've got such gorgeous views. 
Um, and there I was in my dark living room at three in the afternoon, and a book appeared in my lap. Now, you know, when you are 10 years old, you know the location of every book in the house. Locations of the books never change. But this is a book that had no location. I'd never seen it before. And I would never see it again. And it said, the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. And then proceed from there. And to illustrate point number one, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, it told the story of Galileo. And Scott, it told it all wrong. It pretended that Galileo was willing to stick to his truth, even if it meant he would be burned at the stake. That is radically false. Galileo's friend, the Pope, was a friend, and he cut a deal with the Pope because he didn't want to go to the stake, and he said he would abjure everything he had ever written. He would say all of it was wrong in exchange for his last years in house arrest. So that's how he lived. But fortunately, the book did not tell it that way, and the book got it wrong, because I needed a heroic example. And point number two, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there, was Anton von Leeuwenhoek, one of the two men who invented the microscope. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek looking down at pond water and discovering what he called animalcules and looking at human sperm, though I don't think it mentioned sperm, so I don't think it told me about that one, um, and seeing animalcules and writing to the Royal Society about these animalcules he found. So those two rules, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things that are under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for things that are invisible to you and invisible to all of those around you and bring them into the light. Flesh them out from their invisibility. Those two rules grabbed me. And from the life, from the time I was 10 years old, I had a religion and it was science. And my life has been dedicated to science ever since. Wow. But not, convention, not conventional science. Because conventional science is the science of the kids who used to beat me up. My task in science is to be a perpetual outsider. To be able to see things that are invisible to other people. To ask questions that other people would never think of asking. That's my fucking job. So you really internalize the, those two rules and you're living them throughout your life. So take me uh, through the early part of your young adulthood and that career uh, up until the point where your health went sideways. Well, it's very complicated. It's a long story. So let me see if I can sum it up. Um, I wanted, I read On the Road, Jack Kerouac, and I was reading about the beatniks in Time Magazine. I read Time Magazine from cover to cover. My best friend and I, I had one friend. I was lucky, I had a friend. Um, we both read Time cover to cover, and we both tied for first in the Time Magazine current events competitions every year. And Time Magazine had this section to titillate 
guys from commuting from Connecticut into Manhattan to work. You know, the men in the gray plaid suits. Oh no, they were gray flannel. Wait, so they were charcoal gray suits. Um, not plaid, definitely not plaid. But at any rate, so they titillated these guys by telling stories of the beatniks. Every issue, every week, there was a story about the beatniks. And I thought, wow, if I could get near these people, they might accept me. And then my dad made a hideous mistake. For a summer vacation, he took us on a road trip to Cape Cod. He took us to Provincetown. So one day I was walking down, in fact, it was my first day there. I walked down the main street of Provincetown. I saw a gallery. I adored her. I loved her. I was 16 years old. I walked into the art gallery. It was a bunch of beatniks from the West Village in New York City. And they grabbed onto me. They treated me as if I were another adult. And they made me a part of their discussion group. So I spent the, the next week with these people and, and ended up buying a pair of sandals and going back to New York with this symbol of beatnikhood, um, wearing sandals. And people got, my French teacher was so scared, she took me into a walk-in closet. And she said, uh, are, 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 are you a, a beatnik? She was terrified at any rate. Um, so I started reading about Zen Buddhist Satori and I wanted to drop out of high school and get a motorcycle and go across country to California, like on the road. And somehow my parents got my literature teacher to talk me out of it by threatening to send me to lumberjack camp in order to satisfy my rebellious instincts. The last thing I wanted to be around was the armpit sweat of a bunch of macho men. Sorry, that wasn't my vision. Um, that was a nightmare. Um, so when I got to read, when I got into Reed College, the Harvard, the West, the school that Steve Jobs dropped out of, and we had the highest median SATs of any school in the country, higher than Caltech, higher than MIT, higher than Harvard, I dropped out. I dropped out six weeks before the end of the year to pursue Zen Buddhist Satori. And, uh, in, and, and, and as I was hitchhiking and riding the rails, which I did a great deal of on the West Coast, um, a group of people gathered around me, and a couple of years later, um, Time Life Magazine and a bunch of others would give that movement a name. So I accidentally helped start the hippie movement, along with, I'm sure, many other catalytic figures like me. I went to Israel for a year and lived on a kibbutz because I wanted to see what an alternative culture was about. And frankly, my dad sent me there to make a man out of me. He didn't know what to do with me. Um, and then I finally went back to NYU. And um, when, I mean, when I was 12 years old, my mom had taken me to meet with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo. I'm sure it was supposed to be a five minute courtesy meeting. Because why in the world would the head of the graduate physics department meet with a 12-year-old? Only because my mom had twisted arms. Well, we were in his office for an hour. And when we finally came out, he stood above me on my right. He put his hand on my right shoulder 
And he said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get graduate fellowships at any school in North America that he wants in theoretical physics. As we have been discussing the interpretation of the Doppler shift and its implications for Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe, which was the hottest topic in science at that time, period. So when I got out of NYU, indeed, I had four fellowships, but they were in a field that hadn't been named yet, neuroscience. It was called physiological psychology in those days. I got Columbia University degree to let me take any courses in the med school I wanted so I could see the physiological side of things and to major in uh, clinical psychology so I could try to paste together my own program on neuroscience. But I, instead of going into these things, when I was 12 years old, I had realized that what fascinated me was mass human passion. I called it the gods inside of us. And I realized that if I went to grad school, it would be Auschwitz for the mind. I would never be allowed anywhere near the mass passions that, that come from the ecstatic experiences that form the forces of history. Never. So I dropped out and went into something I knew nothing about, um, popular culture. That was the culture the kids used to beat me up, Scott. Yeah, so, so why did you pivot that way? Uh, because I could, because in my junior year, the poet in residence, I was very serious about my poetry, and the poet in, and poet in residence thought I would be the next great poet out of NYU. And one day he said, Bloom, wait until everybody else leaves this classroom. Then close the door. I need to talk to you. This, is, this didn't sound good, Scott. Um, so I waited till everybody left. I closed the door. I sat down in the bowling out seat. And he said, look, you. Last year, I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year, I am telling you, you are the editor of the literary magazine. You do not even have a faculty advisor. The minute you step out that door, you are the literary magazine. Now step out that door. So I walked out and looked terribly confused, and a kid said, that I'd never met before, said, you look disturbed about something, can I help you? And I said, yes, I've, I've just been named, I said this with great distress, the editor of the literary magazine. And because I hated literary magazines, the, the typeface is terrible, the, the choice of the color for the cover is awful. You could stop an orgy within 30 seconds simply by throwing a literary magazine into the room. So he said, why don't we go down for a cup of coffee? Well, Scott, I didn't grow up with humans. Other kids wanted nothing to do with me. I didn't know human rituals. So I didn't know what have a cup of coffee means. So I followed him to a coffee shop. And he ordered a cup of coffee. And I ordered a glass of water. And he asked one of the most important questions of my life. If you could do anything you wanted with this magazine, what would it be? And I said, well, it would be a picture book. Okay, so I gathered a team of visual artists in addition to poets, and I turned it into an experimental graphics and literary magazine. And we made a tremendous splash with our first issue, which was 
the magazine was called the Washington Square Review. So we did our first issue in a 12 by 12 inch format. Just some of the most remarkable paper you've ever seen and with full color printing. And it was gorgeous. And I was called into a student activities committee meeting. Now, Scott, I didn't know where the money for my magazine came from. And I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a student activities committee. So I went to the meeting and they called me up, you know, they put me in the walling out position. And they said, we're doubling the, we're doubling the budget for your next issue. Now, how often do you hear that in your life? It's the only time I've ever heard it. So, okay, so we had twice as much money to, to do the second issue. And I turned it into the sex and death issue. And half of my literary staff quit when they saw the direction I was going. When the magazine came out, not a single soul ever said a word to me about it. But I got calls from the art directors of Look Magazine, this big, gorgeous, glossy, full-color magazine, um, from the art director at the Evergreen Review, which was the leading bohemian magazine in the world, and from the art director at Boy's Life, the Boy Scout magazine, of all things. I'd been thrown out of the Boy Scouts for incompetence of Morse code when I was 11. Not to mention for all of those merit badges, I couldn't get signatures down from my parents. So at any rate, and I hadn't realized I'm going to NYU. This NYU is one of the media capitals of the world. This is where the major magazines are put together. And so I had an opportunity. I walked in to the apartment of one of my artists one day at the beginning of the summer vacation, one of the first days of the summer vacation. I hadn't secured a job yet. I had spent two weeks in a mental institution. Because the day school, the day after school ended, at a Country Joe and the Fish concert, my only rock and roll concert, my only rock and roll concert, I had tried to kill myself. It was a half-hearted attempt, but, and so my wife had arranged with my Uncle Fred to get me into a mental institution for two weeks. So I was straight out of the mental institution where they let me out early for good behavior. Sorry, but, Howard, can we unpack that a bit? Yes. <laughs> Suddenly you're on top of the world and then you're uh, making a half-hearted attempt at suicide. What was going on? For four years, school had given me a structure and an infrastructure of habit, something, a purpose to work toward every day. And my first semester, I got four A's and a B. And I, even though I'd never paid attention in school, in grammar school at all, and didn't care, now I cared for some reason. And I was humiliated by that B. And my second semester, I got four A's and a B again. I had learned a great deal about how the learning process works, so I reinvented my learning. I created a bunch of learning techniques. And from the time I perfected those techniques, I got straight A's every semester. Three, three years, six semesters in a row. Then, so I had this structure and this goal. And then the day after I, the day I got out of school, it all ended. I had no purpose, I had no goal. And I had been clinically depressed, though that term wasn't in use, since I probably was five years old. In other words, every second of every day was a living hell, was a torture. And work was my escape. I had learned to be a workaholic when I was 14 years old, when I entered my freshman year of high school. 
and work was the only thing that dampened the pain. And all of a sudden, there was no more work, no more artificial purposes, and the result was I went straight back in the second by second hell of my clinical depression with no way of getting out of it. I mean, yes, I had gotten four fellowships. The head of the graduate physics department had been right. It was, the, as I said, do-it-yourself neuroscience program that I wanted to put together. Um, and so I knew what I was going to be doing in September, but I hadn't arranged a summer job yet. And I had no, I had no structure to take me out of this depression. So I, I sat there with a big bottle of Valium, and I mean a really big vial of Valium, staring at it. And that's as far as I got in my suicide attempt. A neighbor of mine who had taken me to the Country Joe and the Fish concert said, why don't you come and spend the night with me? So I, and I, was, I had been married since I was 21. So I spent the night with her, and yes, it turned sexual. Um, and my wife the next day, and she called my wife the next day, to say her husband tried to kill himself last night. And my wife contacted my Uncle Fred, the doctor in the family, the only one who had been able to go to college, the only one there was enough money to send to college. That's why my mom didn't get to go to college. And they decided to put me in a mental institution. So that was it. And when I got out of the mental institution, I went to visit the most talented artist of those that I had gathered. And when I got into his apartment, it was, oh, there was no furniture. There was a wall-to-wall -wall carpet on the floor. There was the empty cord of a phone attached to the wall. And there were three people on the floor sobbing. My artist, my artist's wife, and my artist's three-year-old son. They were all sobbing together. And I said, what's wrong? And he explained, our electricity is being shut off. Our furniture has been repossessed. Our phone is about to be cut off. And we're being evicted from the apartment. And I said, but you're fucking brilliant. If I took your work just out for two weeks, to show it to people who buy artwork, you'd be able to pay your rent, and then I could find a summer job. So he said, well, yeah, but you can't just take my artwork out. My best friend and I moved down here from Boston. They'd come from, God knows, not Rhode Island College of Design, but some major art school in Boston. We moved down here hoping to be a studio. So if you're gonna take my artwork out, you have to take his artwork out too. Well, the artwork of his friend nauseated me. I did not feel it was art. I felt it was fucking ugly. But I said yes, because I needed to save this guy. And there wasn't much time in which to do it. We had to come up with money before the next rent was due. We had to pay off the rent he already owed. So I said yes. And then his best friend's wife said she wanted her artwork included too. And she actually was good. She wasn't exceptional. She wasn't extraordinary but she was very good. And I took that portfolio out, and at the end of two weeks, I'd accomplished nothing. So I kept going out over and over and over again. By the end of the summer, I had managed to get New York Studio, but I still hadn't sold any artwork. So my wife, meanwhile, her first husband had been going to Dartmouth when she was forced to marry him because of pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy. And she'd now been through three, four, almost four years with me. 
And she let me know with one of those deniable statements that she was sick and tired of having student husbands and that if I continued to be a student at Columbia or anywhere, I was likely to lose her. And I'm short, I'm tiny. I'm what one book with a chapter about me called diminutive. You put me in your pocket and carry me around like a keychain. So finding women willing to marry you, if you're me, is a very hard thing to do. And I did not want to lose my wife. Plus, grad school looked to me like, like Auschwitz for the mind, mm -hmm. for a reason. Remember, at the age of 13, I started out in theoretical physics and microbiology. At the age of 10, I'd established a lot of other credentials by the age of 12. I had built my first Boolean algebra machine. That's a symbolic logic machine. Symbolic logic would be very important in the era of the search engine. At the age of 16, I'd worked at the world's largest cancer research facility, the Roswell Park Memorial Cancer Research, whatever it's called. And I had come up with a theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe, which I had then discarded because I thought it was comic book science but it made a prediction that 38 years, would, 38 years later would come true, dark energy, the discovery that past a certain point, galaxies begin to fly away from each other at an ever accelerating speed. It had made that prediction and it explained it. It explained what dark energy is. But at the age of 12 or 13, I had discovered that my real, one of my real missions was to find the gods inside of us, to find the ecstatic experience, to see how the ecstatic experience connected with the forces of history. When I was 14 years old, I heard that there was a book called The Varieties of the Religious Experience. That sounded to me like whoever the hell had written it was knew what was in my heart, knew what I wanted to pursue scientifically, and wrote this book for me. It was the days before Amazon. It was hard to find books in Buffalo, New York. It took me four months to track that book down. It was by William James, the founder of American Psychology. It had been written in 1902 as a series of lectures. And it, the book felt as if William James had set out a bunch of Petri dishes with irrational, delusionary religious experiences and said, here is the stuff, the raw material to work on. In my time, I did not have the tools to understand this. You will come along 50 years later, and you will have tools I never had. And I'm leaving this as your job to do. And I took that, I had already taken the job on a year and a half to two years earlier. He was preaching to the converted. And the most important thing he said is, every one of these examples I've given you could be regarded as an example of pathology. But in the hands of certain people, the pathological becomes an engine of history. I was in pursuit of these extraordinary ecstatic experiences, like Fox, the guy, George Fox, the guy who founded the Quaker movement. Um, oh God, what's her name? St. Teresa, um, another mystic. 
both of these people had visions. I was looking for that ecstatic experience. And I realized, and the reason that grad school looked like Auschwitz for the mind to me is how much of that ecstatic experience, especially ecstatic group experience, are you going to run across giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit? You will never run across what interests you the most in your life. So when September came and it was time to go to Columbia, I didn't want to lose my wife. I knew I would never get anywhere near what really interested me in grad school. Again, it felt like I was on my way to the gas chambers. And here I was with a foot in something totally unexpected, something I knew nothing at all about, popular culture, visiting all of the major, major advertising agencies, visiting the networks. It was an opportunity to go into this vast field. It was like an opportunity to have a voyage of the Beagle, a field expedition in the stuff that really interested me the most. And that was my obligation as a science person. Your obligation as a science person is not to get a PhD. It is to find something of substance to explore and then to dedicate your life to the process of exploring it. And if it's at all possible to do what was called in the 50s and the 60s, participant observer science, like Margaret Mead did in Samoa. She threw herself into the experience of the tribe she was studying so completely that she was elected a tribal chief. And she was a woman. And they did not allow women to be tribal chiefs. That's how thoroughly she got involved in experiencing what it was to be a member of the tribe she was studying, not just to describe it. So I had an opportunity to do participant observer science in popular culture. I took it. And eventually, we'll skip over a lot of stuff that happened in between. Um, eventually, I founded a, new, a PR firm in a field I had known nothing about uh, a few years earlier, rock and roll, popular music. And I built it as to be the largest PR firm in its field. I looked at the way things were done. Hell, I'm a scientist. I'm not obligated to go along with any rituals that these so-called vinyl junkies um, had established, not at all. My job is to come splashing down like a scientist from Mars, look at what they're doing, see what works, see what doesn't, discard what doesn't, and where necessary, invent new techniques. Hey, I learned how to do that from reading sci the Scientific American from cover to cover when I was 11 and 12 years old. I learned it from Martin, Gar Martin Gardner's mathematical games section in the Scientific American. Then I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry. Of course, it was struggling at first, um, but I totally reinvented what PR was in the music industry. And so my competitors started ceasing to exist. And, and I went on the motto that good information drives out bad. And it was based on Gresham's Law. It was about six years before I discovered that Gresham's Law was bad money drives out good not good money drives out bad. I don't give a fuck. The fact is, the way I did things, the truth drove out lies every single time. Remember, the first rule of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. 
So we worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, Joan Jett, all kinds of people like that. And in most cases, he built them from almost scratch. We made them into superstars. Why? Because they fucking deserve to be superstars. And I knew it. And if it's the truth at any price, including the price of your life, if you find somebody who can have an influence on humanity that's at all positive, you must dedicate yourself to making sure they have that positive influence. However, my way of working, and this had started when I was 14, so my parents came to me and said, remember that school you did that crazy interview at? We've gotten you in. So you have a choice. You can go to the public school or you can go to the private school. But if you go to the private school, you have to make us a promise. You will work. You will do your homework. And Scott, I had never done that because I was too busy reading books. And I made that promise. And I, to me, a promise is an absolute. It's an absolute. And that's when I learned how to work seven days a week all of my waking hours. And it, it turned out, as I said, to be the salvation for my clinical depression. It moderated it. It did not make it go away, but it buffered the pain a little bit. So all during the years of uh, getting into the popular culture and building up your PR firm, how was your depression during that period? Same as always. It was always painful. It's, it's a constant in your life to this day? No. Thanks to CFS, I no longer have it okay. at all. Um, so basically, to establish a company in a very competitive field from scratch, I had to work the way I like to work, which is all my waking hours, seven days a week. The difficulty was I had heard that fighter pilots are sent into battle, dogfights, for two weeks. And then they're taken out and given six weeks of rest and relaxation because their alarm system is always on super high when they are fighting. And if you leave that alarm system on too long, you will burn out. Well, my alarm system was on super high seven days a week, 52 weeks to the year, period. Never an off moment. I don't like rest. I don't like relaxation. It just depresses me. So I worked for eight years without taking a single vacation. Then one of my staff members walked into my office one day and said, I think it's about time you take a vacation. So I took my first vacation in eight years. Uh, that was the two-week vacations that I arranged at the end of the summer. I would usually arrange them so I could end up in L.A. and possibly stay in L.A. for a while because I had lots of business to do. So the day I woke up, the first day after the vacation, there I was in L.A., ready to rock and roll. So I knew somehow in my 40s, I was in my 30s now, I knew that someday in my 40s, my body would simply refuse to do this anymore. I had no idea of what form that refusal would take, but I knew that it would make me incapable of working, and I knew that I had to do something to make sure 
that when that happened, I could still survive. So my wife and I lived like church mice. Our furniture was all furniture dragged in from off the street, for example. We were not trying to show anybody status symbols. Neither of us gave a shit about status symbols at all. And we took all of our money and we invested it in real estate. The only thing I could think of that would bring me a living if I was too weak to work. And then in 2008, um, March 10th, 2008, um, I did one of my usual work things. I flew down to a place that was five hours out into the countryside. I must have flown into a, yeah. 2008? Uh, no, no, 1988. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. So it was 1988. I flew down to, to meet with Womack and Womack. Womack and Womack was Sam Cooke's daughter, Linda Womack, Cecil Womack. Cecil Womack and his brother, Bobby, had written the Rolling Stones' first hit. And they were a superstar duo. And they were my new clients. So I had studied them for a month. And then I was flying down to meet them in their own environment. So I knew I would burn out. We bought real estate. We bought the, the brownstone I'm sitting in right now. For your heart. Yeah. So you, you're anticipating that your body's going to burn out and you're preparing for that, but it doesn't yes. sound like you're backing off on how hard you're pushing yourself. Physically. Oh, never. No. If people tell me you should not be doing something and I know I should be doing, I, doing it. I know twice as much well that I should be doing it after I'm told not to do it. If they tell me it could be the end of my career or the end of my life, I don't give a shit. Because my first principle is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. So I flew down to, I don't know where this place was, Kentucky or something like that. I flew down to an airport, I don't know where. And I, a Jeep picked me up and drove me five miles into the countryside. And Linda and Cecil had this new home that was built like an aircraft. It was unfinished. It was on the top of a hill and it was surrounded by sheep. And it was, because it was March 10th, it was cold. It was the end of winter, the beginning of spring. And there was no heating in the house. And there was no furniture because the house wasn't finished. Um, so we sat on the floor for the next five or six hours while I found the story of their lives, which was fascinating. And then I got into the Jeep and was driven another five hours back to the airport. And then I did something very uncharacteristic. When I left the plane, um, when I got home, I realized that I had forgotten my computer and left it on the plane. And the next day, I was obviously coming down with a cold. But my technique for handling a cold was work your ass off, walk two and a half miles, go on about your business. And the second day, the cold was a little worse, Sunday. But I worked through it. I took my two and a half mile walk. The next day at the office, I can't even remember, Scott. All I know is that I was at the office on Monday. And on Tuesday, at sometime around noon, early in the day, I said, you've got to get me out of here. Um, if I don't get out fast, I'll be too weak to even walk up my stairs. And they called the car service. Um, one staff member got under this arm. I mean, you've seen this in movies, but you've never experienced it in person. So one staff member got under this armpit. Another staff member got under this armpit. And they dragged me to the elevator 
and threw me into a car as if I were a sack of potatoes. And I lay there in the back until we got to my house and I don't know how I made it up the stairs because I live on the fourth floor. And I didn't leave that bed, that bedroom, my bedroom for the next three months. And a good part of it took two weeks to think and two weeks to speak. Well, it is a wild ride with Howard through his life. And in part two of the interview, Howard tells about the struggles of living horizontally, his multiple near recoveries from ME-CFS, and how he finally found a set of treatments that has allowed him to pursue his passion for science. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You could also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you've had your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others.